Go ahead and be seated. We are so glad that you're here, and we're starting a brand new series starting this morning called Non-Negotiables. And, and the premise of this series is that there are some things in the Christian life that you can't negotiate with. And these are the things, we're going to talk about the things that make us Christians, and if you don't believe and, and participate in these things, it means that you probably are not on your road to heaven yet. Smile when I say that. You're, you know, and it takes more to just coming to church to get to heaven, and we want to be very clear about that. There is a faith system we have in Jesus and the Bible, and so we're going to talk about the non-essentials of the Christian life. These are things, or, the, or, or excuse me, the non-negotiables of the Christian life, the essentials of the Christian life, and these are things that I believe that are so important for us to understand. So, having said that, probably the most important one to me as I look at Scripture and as I've walked with God for some time now, uh, the number one for me is who is Jesus and what did He come to do? If I don't get that right, who is Jesus and what did He come to do? If I don't get that right, I don't get anything else right. That is core to what we believe and who we are and our new identity and all those things. So this is pretty important. So we're going to start with Matthew 16, 13 today, and uh, I'm going to ask you a question that Jesus asked his disciples. So let me give you the context of it. Jesus has taken his disciples away from the crowds. He's in a place called Caesarea Philippi, and he is alone with them. His days are numbered on the planet, and so he's talking to them about, talking to them about some very crucial and essential things in the Christian life. And so he asked them a question. And this is the question. Matthew 16, 13 says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's asking, what's the rumors? Who's, who are, what's out there? What have you heard? Who, who are people saying that I am? And his disciples one by one began to answer the question, well, some think you're John the Baptist risen from the dead, and some people think you're a prophet, and some people think you're a great teacher, and you're pretty amazing, and, you know, healing people. And so there's a variety of answers. And then he asks the question to his disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And so that's a very important question, and it's the very question that I'm asking you this morning, who do you say that Jesus is. Now, before you give a superficial answer to that, I want you to know that your lifestyle demonstrates what you believe on that regard. So it's easy to sit in church and intellectually confirm, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Savior of the world, that He's the Son of Man, but I'm going to tell you honestly, I think that the proof is in the pudding. That's an old phrase. Introducing it to, I want to teach young people new phrases at Grace Church. And so, so here's the thing. I think the bottom line is how you live your life demonstrates what you actually confess with your mouth. So I believe that, that answering that question is crucially important and you've got to look inside your life and ask the question, does my lifestyle reflect what I'm confessing with my mouth? So Jesus asks the question and John answers that question as he writes the Gospel of John. One of the guys that was in that group that day was the youngest of all the disciples who was the Apostle John. 
He was probably, most scholars think that when he was walking with Jesus, he was probably late teens. And so he was a young guy, and he is following Jesus. Jesus called him to leave everything that he has. And so John now, years after Jesus has died and been buried and rose again, in the Gospel of John, he then takes the time to answer that question so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can know exactly what the answer to that question is. So here we go. This is John. And by the way, John was the most beloved of all the disciples. This was Jesus' favorite. And he was in the inner three, and he was in the inner circle of, of one. And in the upper room, he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this is a very close associate of Jesus that is now writing to us, and he's, ask, and he's answering this dynamic, powerful question. So in John 1.1, it says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. Watch that phrase. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. And the Word was, was, was God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So John now is answering the question, who is Jesus? And I want you to notice the phrase uh, that he was, the word was with God. Whoever this word is, he was with God. And this is, this is one of those cases that the English text doesn't give us the full strength of the meaning of what these words actually say. So the Greek word, the Greek words that are used here are proston theon. So in this process, this phrase, the word was with God, and that phrase, proston theon, literally means, now get this, don't miss this, this literally means face-to-face, nose-to-nose with God. Now anybody who's ever studied the Bible, who, and especially any Jewish folks that have ever studied the Old Testament, would know that face-to-face encounters didn't happen unless you died. So this was, an, this was a statement. This statement that kind of gets washed out in the English translation is a statement of equality with God the Father himself. This is a powerful, dynamic statement. It is face-to-face with God. And then in verse 14, it says, So the Word. Now, who is this Word who is face-to-face with God? So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. So this word was the human Jesus. So who is Jesus? The answer to that question is he is unequivocally the God-man. He is 100% God, equal to the Father, and 100% man. Emptied himself of the right to be regarded of of God. He, He just emptied himself of the right to be seen as God. So this is a non-negotiable. If you think that he is less than that, then I'm going to tell you honestly, look me in the face. I would hate for you to say you never said this to me, but you are not on your road to heaven if you think that Jesus is not who he said he was. you got to believe fundamentally that Jesus was the God-man equal to the Father, that he now is the revelation. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes of the fullness of God. So what, if that's the case, first of all, I'm just going to say, if you don't believe that, uh, you are not yet on your road to eternal life. It doesn't say you won't get there. I'm just simply saying that's fundamental. That's a non-negotiable when it comes to believing 
in eternal life in Jesus. So if you think that he is just a good teacher, he was. But that's not what the Bible says about him. If you think that he was a great prophet, yes, he was. Jesus was a prophet. He foretold the future. He was that, but far more than that. If you think that he was just a moral man, yes, no one was greater than him. No one. He was perfect. He never sinned. But he was more than that. He was literally face-to-face. He was the representation of God. So if that's the case then, what did Jesus come to do? This is another non-negotiable. As we think about as we think about the person of Jesus, now let's talk about his work, his purposes. So this is something that I believe that every believer should know in their heart and be able to use. You know, I have this thing called nap, napkin theology. So if I go out to lunch with somebody, I want to be able to take certain fundamental things of the faith and I want to be able to write on my napkin these things and hand it to this person and say, this is what I believe. This is what I'm going to call napkin theology right here. This is something, what I'm about to share with you, is something that you should know as a Christ follower. That you shouldn't say, well, I'll ask my pastor about that. That, no, just wrong answer. <laughs> door number two, it's not door number one. I'm just saying, you need to learn how to step up and address the things that are very important in Scripture. So here are the non-negotiables about Jesus, what he came to do. He had a threefold purpose. First of all, the first thing that Jesus came to do, and you should innately know this, you should know this as a believer, he came to explain the Father. That was one of his missions on the planet. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one. In the old King James, it says the only begotten. That's confusing language because it suggests that he was created. It's not, that's not what the, the word literally means. It's monogenes, which means he was one of a kind. There was no one ever like Jesus. 100, he had two natures. You don't have two natures. You have one nature. But Jesus had two natures. He had the divine nature. He was God. In his essence, he was God. And in his essence, he was human. So that's what this verse is saying. No one has ever seen God but the unique one, the monogenes, who is, him, who is himself God. Just in case we didn't get it, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. See that? What, is, what was the mission that Jesus came to do? The mission was for you to see Jesus, was for you to see God himself. If you want to know who God is, you've got to look at Jesus because that's his purpose. He came to reveal who the Father was. Now, I want to, I want to dig deeper in this because this is something that I want you to thoroughly understand and I want you to be able to explain it to your friends. I want you to, when someone, you sit down with coffee to somebody and say, so you, you, what do you think about Jesus? I want you to be able to say, I want you to be able in your heart to know the answer. Well, let me tell you what, who he was and let me tell you what he came to do. So what he came to do was explain the Father. So let me tell you a story. There was a certain recluse that lived deep in the mountains of Colorado. This is a true story, actually. When he died, his relatives came from the city to collect his valuables. Upon arriving, they went inside the shack. They saw an old cooking pot, a rock fireplace, a table, and some old mining equipment, and a couple pictures. And so so they walked in, they looked around, and they picked out a few things that they might want to have to remember him. And they, you know, started to leave. And there was a friend of this recluse that was, you know, rode up on a mule. And uh, he said 
to them, um, listen, he's an old friend of mine. I was wondering if you might let me go in the cabin and take anything that I might want. I mean, you've already had first choice. And so would you mind if I just went in? He's a friend of mine. Could I have a couple things to remember him by? And so the family said, of course. Sure, you can do that. And so the old-timer went into the cabin, walked directly to the table, got underneath the table and lifted up one of the floorboards underneath the table and proceeded to take out all the gold, which, by the way, was millions of dollars worth of gold. This was this old guy's lifetime savings of gold. And his friend, the old guy, looked out the window and he commented as the family was driving away and he commented out loud and says, they should have got to know him better. <laughs> right? They should have got to know him better. And that is the purpose of Jesus, that we might know the Father. And the only way to know the Father, there's no shortcuts here, the only way for you to know the Father is to know his son Jesus. He is the only way. That, there's not multiple ways. That's what Jesus says. That's what all of his close associates said. That's what the message of Jesus was. And so here's the question for you. Do you know, let me ask you, this is so good. Do you know the treasure that Jesus is? Do you know what you have at your fingertips? Do you know that he's a treasure? And the more you get to know him, the more treasure you have at your fingertips the more you see who God the Father is. This is so good and so powerful and so amazing, so transforming and so life-altering. Life so that's the first thing that Jesus came to do is to explain the Father. The second thing that Jesus came to do is to bring the kingdom of God to the planet, to this planet, to bring the kingdom to the planet, to begin to proclaim the kingdom. That's the second thing that Jesus came to do. First, to explain the Father Second, to bring the kingdom. You say, where do I get that? Well, I've read my Bible, which <clears throat> I hope you have too. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, this is what, these are, this is the red words of Jesus. This is, this is the words that Jesus spoke when he was on the planet. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too. Because, now watch this, because that is why I was sent. Jesus was sent by the Father to proclaim the message of the kingdom. That there's a coming kingdom that supersedes all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus' message was, I come to bring the kingdom. I come to proclaim this kingdom. And I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble here today. I don't care. I, my, middle, my parents told me my middle name is trouble. So I've just been living that out all my life. So I'm just going to simply say this. Listen to me very carefully. The message of the Bible is clear about this coming kingdom. And there should be no rivals when the kingdom of God is fully come, all the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed or brought into submission to that one and ultimate kingdom of God. So having said that, this is where I'm going to get myself into a little bit of trouble with some of you. I'm just going to simply say my allegiance needs to be completely and exclusively to that kingdom. Now everyone says amen to that. So having said that, my patriotism to America should take a second seat to my patriotism towards the kingdom. Isn't that true? I'm a patriot, but my patriotism is, is, is primarily 
to the kingdom of God. And secondarily, then I'm going to honor the country that I live in. I'm going to do all those things. But the reality is, is that oftentimes I see posts all the time where people in the same breath put following Jesus' kingdom in the same category as being a patriot towards America. And I'm just simply saying, friends, if you do that, you don't know the Scripture. Because the Scripture is very clear that there's coming a kingdom. So I want to dig deeper into this because this is so good. So you with me so far? If you're mad at me, just hang in there with me. We might be friends toward the end. I don't know. Uh, you know, I'll be your friend. I don't care. You know, you, you have to make that choice if you want to be my friend. So let me see if I can help you understand how the kingdom works. When the Roman Empire was in its heyday, it was this huge kingdom, the greatest kingdom on the earth in that era. It was large it was, and it was getting bigger all the time in the first century. And the Caesars continually sent out armies to conquer new territories. That was, Rome was this a massive, you know, major dominant country of the world. It was a world power. If there was such a thing in the first century, and there was. When a new territory came under Roman control, the Romans would use force to try to make that new territory as much like Rome as possible. They would go into a territory, conquer it, and then they would change the culture. And they would do things, let me give you some examples. They would build Roman temples and institute the Roman religion, which, is the, which was the worship of Caesar. You all understand that? In the first century, the first century people worshipped Caesar. They instituted that. They had Roman education, arts, culture. They built Roman baths. They would do everything they could do to make this new territory just like Rome. So the question is, why did they do that? Why did they do that? And here's why. They did it so that if Caesar ever came there in his outlying territory, that this kingdom would be so much like Rome, his home city, that he would feel comfortable. The Caesar would feel comfortable in the city that he conquered. That's why they made people conform. And so when you think about that, it has a lot of bearing on the kingdom of God. Listen to this. So first of all, let me just simply say, one of the things that Jesus taught us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember that? That's not just words. That's actually an ideal. That's actually a concept. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when the kingdom of God is fully come on this planet, this planet will look just like heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. We're not there yet, just so you know. This is Reno still. Okay? We're not there yet. But when the kingdom of God is fully come, that's exactly what it's going to look like. And so the kingdom of God is, will be complete. Now, having said that, so... The kingdom of God is right now. So there is a part of the kingdom that's right here. So the question that I would ask you, how do I know and how can I recognize when I see the kingdom of God on the planet right now? One day, I'll know it clearly because Jesus is going to come back in a blazing glory of fire and he's going to come back and he's going to, and he's going to subjugate all the kings of this, of this world to his kingdom. But right now, the kingdom is right now. So how do I recognize when I can, how can I see the kingdom? How do I know it's here right now? And the answer is, whenever I see justice prevail, that's the kingdom. Whenever I see love exalted in Jesus' model, that's the kingdom. When justice prevails and love 
is the, is the way we think. That's the kingdom. That's why Jesus prayed. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying there is that earth will become just like what heaven is. And heaven is a place of justice and mercy and love and just amazingness. So that's the second thing. First one is that he came to, re- to reveal the Father. He came to bring the kingdom. Thirdly, he came to reconcile people to God through his own death. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, literally to be sin. He laid sin on Jesus so that we could be made right with God through Jesus Christ. So here's the reality. This is what I believe with all my heart. I believe that you and I are more broken than we realize. So how do I know that? The bottom line is all you have to do is look at the cross. And you look at, you look at what Christ did for your life. And you've got to conclude that my life must not be as good as I think it is. If Jesus had to die to reconcile me to the Father. So the third thing that Jesus came to do, not only to reveal the Father, not only to initiate the kingdom, but he also came to reconcile you and I, broken sinners, and this is non-negotiable. This isn't something you can say, if you don't believe this, fundamentally, you're just a churchy. Fundamentally, you're just a churchy. This is non-negotiable truth. And the question is, is, and this is probably the most important question that you're going to hear me ever ask you. So what does Jesus now want from me? What does Jesus want from you? So let's stop and slow down a bit. We're going to take communion in just a minute. But I want us to slow down and I want us to think about what is it that Jesus wants from me? So listen to this carefully. He wants the same thing he wanted from John's life. He wants the same thing he wanted from all his disciples' lives. He wants you to follow him exclusively in obedience. To do whatever he commands you to do. So having said that, we live in a culture where, you know, following Jesus or Loving Jesus, let me say it this way, we live in a culture where loving Jesus is popular. Oh yeah, I love Jesus. People say that all the time, I love Jesus. But, that, but I'm going to suggest to you that what God wants from your life is for you to pick up your cross and daily follow him to do the things that he wants you to do. See, I think, you know, I'm going to speak to this issue, you know, honestly, and I'm going to get myself in a little bit of trouble here. Jesus doesn't want to be your boyfriend. I'm just telling you the truth. He doesn't want to be your boyfriend. He doesn't want to be the man upstairs. He doesn't want to be your buddy. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the exalted Savior. He is the one that rose from the dead. He doesn't, he doesn't, he wants you to pick up your cross. And what does it mean? What does God want from me? When I believe on Jesus, when I trust in him, it means that I desire to obey him in every facet of of my life. I may not be perfect at it, and I'm not, and neither are you. But in my desire, in my heart, I just want to pick up my cross and follow after him. That's what Jesus wants from your life, for you to follow him just like he wanted it from John. And all the disciples, 
All of them. All of them lived martyrs' lives. They picked up their cross. The only one that didn't die that we know of as a martyr was John the Apostle. He got, he got exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote for us the book of Revelation. But he was still a martyr for Jesus in the, in the sense that he gave his life. To lay down your life and to pick up his cause and to make his cause more important than your cause. That's what Jesus wants from you. He wants you to be second. He wants you to get off his throne. You don't belong sitting there. He wants you to get off his throne, let him sit on the throne, and you live your life following him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in the early church, in the early days, first century, yes, men and women, for personal allegiance. Allegiance. It's not a word that we use a lot around here in this country, is it? Allegiance. Jesus wants you to pledge your allegiance to him based on what he has done for you. That's the truth. And until I'm there, until I'm giving Jesus my allegiance, then I'm really, can, can I just say this to you? I'm just churchy. Until I give my Savior my allegiance and that I make a decision in my heart to follow him. All the disciples left everything they had and they followed him. I don't think Jesus is asking you to quit your job, but I do think he wants you to be loyal in everything that you do.